Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The religious left is gaining notoriety as a mass of 2020 presidential campaigns seek to engage with voters. As I record this, the first debates featuring the Democratic candidates is preparing to hit the stage this very evening. How these candidates are speaking to religious communities seems different this time around, and how they continue to speak about religion as the liberal or liberal-leaning candidates could make a big difference for their chances of capturing the White House. In the midst of this resurgence, the history of the religious left is a topic well worth examining. In the 1970s, the religious left looked destined to be successful in the culture war of ideas and at the ballot box for years to come. I've often wondered what happened. Why are liberal politicians re-embracing discussing religion in their candidacies, and why did they ever stop? My topic of conversation today is the rise, fall, and resurgence of the religious left from the 1970s until today. My guest is Dr. L. Benjamin Rolski. L. Benjamin Rolski received his Ph.D. from Drew University in American Religious Studies. His work has appeared in a variety of academic and popular venues, including Method and Theory in the Study of Religion and the Journal of American Academy of Religion, as well as the Christian Century, the Los Angeles Review of Books, CNN Opinion, and the Religion and Culture Forum at the University of Chicago. His research and teaching interests include religion and politics, the study of popular culture, and critical theory. Rolski's first book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, is forthcoming this fall from Columbia University Press, and you can pre-order it today. He is planning to follow it up with a second book that examines the history of the new Christian right across the 20th century. The religious left rose and fell. In this conversation, we discuss key figures of that rise and fall, such as the story of television producer Norman Lear and People for the American Way. And we also discuss how the religious left is rising again and how high they may rise. Enjoy this conversation with L. Benjamin Rolski. Dr. L. Benjamin Rolski, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you very much for having me. I can't wait to do this. I've looking, been looking forward to this for quite some time. Yeah, me too. It's really great to have you here. Uh, can you just spend a moment and sort of introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. Um, my name is L. Benjamin Rolski. Uh, people probably know me better by Benji. Um, at present, I am a part-time lecturer at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, in the religion department. Um, I'm also an adjunct instructor at uh, Monmouth University in history and anthropology. And um, I'm also a contributor to a number of different websites, um, including Sacred Matters, um, HNET Reviews, LA Review Books, uh, Marginalia Review Books, and also most recently, um, CNN Opinion. And um, I might touch on a couple of those things later on in the um, conversation as well. But for the time being, I'm doing some teaching, doing some writing for both sort of academic and popular audiences and enjoying it very much. Brilliant. Okay. So we've been emailing back and forth for some time now. So like I said, it is great to have you here finally. And it's so cool to actually hear your voice on the other end of this thing because <laughs> Thank we've you for having e- me. emailed for so long. Um and we've talked a lot about in our emails about media presence for academics, and you did just refer to some of your your popular writing. Um, and so whether academics embrace podcasts or writing articles for large audiences like CNN, I'm curious about your stance on that. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your view of trying to reach as big of an audience as you possibly can as somebody who is like immersed in the academy? Yeah, I think part of it is just... Um, sort of a passion that I have just to write and to compose and to think. Um, And so I would say that for me, it's part, you know, strategy in the sense that I want a little bit of exposure to be sure, a little bit of visibility, Um, certainly keeping in mind the idea of sort of how a lot of that is done, quote unquote, you know, kind of for free. Um, But at the same time, um, I think in general, I kind of have an sort of an ambivalent relationship to it in the sense that I think we do need to 
employ these certain or different medias, whether it's podcasts, um, Twitter, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I also think that a lot of that um, can swallow us up in some capacity, um, mm. you know, in the sense that we live in this age of um, kind of crumbling expertise, popularization of things, democratization of things. So it's kind of ironic in the sense that when we reach out to popular audiences through something like Twitter, we're contributing to the very thing that's kind of affecting us to begin with, which is a sense of sort of a crumbling sense of authority or expertise. So I think it kind of cuts in both ways. I think it's really important, uh, but then I also think that we have to be careful about how we engage the public and what idioms and what languages and what voices, because uh, something I also think about is that once we put something out into the world, you know, we live by our own academic um, standards and expectations, but once we put something out into the world, none of that really applies anymore. And you're held to a much different standard. And I think this is the case, especially when we're trying to speak a particular, perhaps progressive message, and that message has maybe arguably, as I argue in the forthcoming book, I perhaps, uh, perhaps fallen flat. Um, I think there's the assumption that we do have something to say to the public. I think that's very valuable and needed and important. I think we just have to think about the terms and the grounds upon which we do a lot of that. Um, so, for example, um, when Colin Kaepernick was taking his stance um, with the platform that he had, I wrote a little something about how uh, he fits into a larger sort of longer tradition of, of protest and radical voices. A number of people equated him to someone like, you know, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. Um, to me at the time, it, it seemed like it was a much better historical kind of argument to say that his movements and his articulations sort of paralleled those of the black sort of power moment uh, during the um, Olympics during the late 60s. Um, and so to me, when we put ourselves out there and put work out there, depending on what our purposes are, if we're just there to kind of lift something up, that's great. But at the same time, if we sort of lack that historical context or accuracy, then our very credibility as kind of academics comes into question. Um, and especially in these times when we're sort of encouraged to be more vocal, encouraged to push back, encouraged to voice, um, just kind of be wary of the waters that you're wading into, um, especially with social media, especially with something like Twitter. Um, but I'm certainly for it. I'm certainly someone who uses it. But at the same time, I'm, I have an ambivalence as well, just because I know that technology tends to act back on those who are using it, whether we realize it or not. Uh, and I think we oftentimes just have to be careful with a lot of that. Yeah. You know, in a couple months ago, I had a professor at Washburn University on the show, Dr. Chris Jones in the Religious Studies Department. And he and I mm -hmm. talked about like the, the Twitter historians movement with like Kevin mm -hmm. Cruz and mm -hmm. uh, the, t the tattooed prof, um, uh, Kevin Gannon, mm -hmm. and how those guys put themselves out there so much. And it's such a complicated thing that they do, but they do it for free. As you mentioned, it is, un mm -hmm. it is unpaid intellectual labor. Mm -hmm. And so it's really tough. But and for me, I do this show just because I think that this is a fun thing to do for me. This is uh, something that I mm -hmm. just enjoy doing in my free time. I don't make any money from this. And, you know, I also am not an expert. I just enjoy hearing from people mm -hmm. who are experts. Like, that's why I like having these, because I feel like I have so much to learn. But it's also unpaid. Mm -hmm. You know, all these things we're putting out there. And it's it's yeah. it's hard work, and it's very challenging to uh, think about doing work that you know that you will never see anything that will like keep the lights on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad you're willing to spend an hour with me to talk about this stuff because I'm a, I am excited to talk about your new book and get into some of the uh, nitty gritty. So thank you for being here again. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful so far. Okay, so. Um, in the vein of working with, like, and for a large audience, you study media, religion, religious liberalism, and large cultural events and ideas. So you kind of like have like a, a finger on the pulse <laughs> of many different areas within our society. <laughs> and within your field of religious studies, how would you describe like your area of specialty and kind of like what you do every day? Yeah, so I would say, um, and this is a little bit of a microcosm of sort of the field um, a little bit. So I guess content-wise, I've been trained in the study of American religious history. Um, as of late, that's been sort of modified, uh, perhaps to include a variation which would be called American religious studies. Um, I think within history, uh, there's been a movement as of late to kind of uh, push for a little bit more theory, a little bit more self-reflection. Um, so I would say the content is certainly that of religious history going from say, uh, Catholic settlements and the Perry Millers of the world all the way up to Oprah. It's certainly, certainly something I do up at Rutgers in, in how I teach. Um, so I would say that's the content, my exams pre-1865, post-1865. So I'd say that's kind of the landscape, I suppose, the, the sort of canvas. 
And then I sort of use that as a sort of a jumping off point to then develop a methodological kind of toolbox. Because as you say, it's fairly widespread. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to sort of take up different objects and be able to unpack them, whether it's in the study of religion or American history or political science or sociology. Um, and so my third and fourth exams in my program were um, critical theory and study of culture industries and what those tend to do to something like religion. And then the breadth vast sort of sociological literature on the culture wars. Uh, do they exist? Do they not exist? How do they work? How do they not work? Um, so long story short, I suppose, I attempt to embody and execute and articulate an interdisciplinary method um, that uses uh, history as both method but also content. Um, that's an observation coming from someone like Catherine Lofton um, in the study of, um, say, American Religious Studies. So I would say um, I'm able to take up what I'm able to take up just because I was so deeply influenced by the writings of, say, people like Theodore Adorno and Walter Benjamin and Roland Barthes and um, that third exam where I looked at the um, culture industries. And so to me, the way that the Frankfurt School defines something like social prevalence is, I would say, what I what I do, what I specialize. So I remember writing something on Lofton's book and I talked about how many different iPods there are that exist today, like the <laughs> sheer breath. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. And the point of that is to kind of demystify. You know, you don't really realize that's going on, but once you bury into a little bit, you realize, holy cow, there's, there are bazillions of things that have been made. And the culture industry prides itself on being able to identify a surface and perhaps peer below the surface. Uh, and so I was just talking to, to my wife. She's watching a little TV down there, and we hear this ad about, um, you know, I want it all, I want it all, this kind of song that's singing along. But listening to something that Zizek would say, something, you know, there's almost an obligation to enjoy. You're almost forced to work to enjoy. Enjoying becomes a form of work and labor. Um, and so I've been deeply kind of influenced by a lot of that, maybe more cynical, maybe critical approaches, those of the Craig Martins of the world and perhaps even the Russell McCutcheons of the world of that critical approach. But I'm also very attentive to uh, words and sentences and idioms and diction and rhythm. Um, and so I would say the content, just training religious history, but then I've been very intentional to be very interdisciplinary at the same time, uh, which allows me to, like you're saying, have a decent or have a fairly broad broad um, sort of view of my subject matter uh, and um, be able to unpack it for those who will listen, whether in academic settings or more uh, popular settings. Wonderful. So something that you have, um, you just mentioned popular settings, and you are sort of going to, I think, become known with your new book, um, Mm -hmm. Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, you're going to latch on to <laughs> a figure that is very well known within the popular culture, and that is the man Norman Lear. That's and I've, right. I've never thought about Norman Lear. Like in my life until I've read this book, because you know, as a child of the as of the eighties and the early nineties, right. right. he he just sort of missed me um, as as a demographic. Yep. And so I'm curious if you can just remind the audience who Norman Lear is before we discuss the book, and then yeah. tell me a little bit about your fascination with his life and his message. Yeah. So luckily for me. Uh, that story was front and center recently on ABC when uh, Jimmy Kimmel and the network decided to reenact, basically put on uh, an episode of All in the Family, an episode of The Jeffersons. So Norman Lear is a television writer, producer, um, comedian, obviously, in some sense, writer. Uh, he was born during the sort of Great Depression era, right around the New Deal in New Haven, Connecticut, of all places. Um, and he had a number of different jobs um, in the sort of industry, uh, but before he got to any of those jobs, he actually flew um, missions in World War II um, over Italy, I believe. He has this great autobiography that's out. Um, I can't remember the title of it at the moment, but um, he, was, he served in World War II. He came back. Um, he served a, a little bit. He worked for um, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis for a little bit. Um, ended up meeting someone like Bud Yorkin, who was a fellow sort of comedian and writer and put together their own production company. They ended up working on some movies uh, first before something like All in the Family sort of changed America forever, <laughs> I suppose. Mm -hmm. And he got into TV and then he ended up really dominating the 70s. And, you know, like you said, the 80s, 90s, certainly a little bit out of the range. And there's no reason why I would be able to, you know, experience that in the 70s because I certainly wasn't alive either. But, you know, for whatever reason, I just... My family just uh, tended to show those sorts of shows 
all the time uh, when I was growing up. Um, so it was really just all in the family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH and, you know, this really age of relevance moment when TV was sort of turning back on itself, turning back on society and trying to show itself to itself. Um, and so Norman Lear is someone who is seen as sort of jumpstarting this and also in many ways um, starting the idea of, doc of sort of appropriating British sitcoms to American audiences. You know, countless people love The Office, um, obviously the American version, the British version. Norman um, started really doing that in the 70s with All in the Family and even something like Sanford and Son. Uh, so for people who don't know, he did Sanford and Son, who he at least produced things like Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, Maude, All in the Family, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, One Day at a Time. Um, and those really dominated the 70s, which with uh, All in the Family really almost being on the entire decade. Uh, and if you just think for a moment that there were only three networks at the time that broadcast this type of stuff and the sheer numbers of people who watched these programs, anyone who pays attention to TV history knows obviously of the MASH finale and how many people watch that. Mm. Um, so this is the moment that we're really talking about. And, 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 and Norman Lear's front and center uh, to this sort of revolution in television programming, I uh, was certainly supported by the networks as well because they needed to make money. So it wasn't as if it was just this altruistic kind of thing. Normally, they're trying to make this kind of self-aware television. Um, it was sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The networks can be in on it, and um, we can make and sort of remake television. So in a lot of ways, that's where Norman's coming from. Um, he saw 50s and 60s TV as rather sort of vacuous in his opinion, and he wanted to sort of flip the script in many ways. And so that's what he's arguably known for. A moment ago, you said a term, age of relevance. What is that? So I define, and also, I guess, in reading or doing the dissertation, which is where a lot of this book comes from, um, you're reading sort of television histories and media studies. Uh, there's a moment that historians, analysts, scholars call the age of relevance. Um, and so I tend to broaden that out a little bit more and include more of the mid-60s up through, say, the mid-70s. You look in the sort of 60s literature, academic literature, during civil rights, relevance is a thing in the air. Um, obviously, pastors are leaving their churches in the name of relevance because we have this relevance in front of us, not unlike what's going on today in the draw to social media and to reach broader audiences. We just have to think about the terms and grounds upon which that takes place, I think. So to me, relevance really comes out of that moment. Lear sort of channels that in some way, uh, whether he would admit it or not, I'm not necessarily sure, but I sort of contextualize his programming as an outgrowth of what's happening during the quote-unquote movement. Uh, we're trying to make things more relevant, more pertinent, uh, not just for social reasons, but also economic reasons. Uh, the networks figure out that, you know, there's a new demographic out there that is young, that is hip, that wants to be informed, uh, and so we want to give them programming that will be able to feed and sort of satisfy that desire. Here comes Norman Lear. I want to do some TV that's going to put a bigot on television. Mm. Okay. So in some ways, we have a bit of a coming together of the minds, even though Lear would fight against standards and practices in the very first episode of the entire show. But basically, the age of relevance, to be more specific, just to the early 70s, is really when TV becomes less about... Uh, programming in itself and begins to become beholden to a larger kind of vision, socioeconomic, political, religious vision. And I use Lear to sort of get at that. But to me, it's really, you have Mary Tyler Moore, you have MASH, and you have All in the Family. And those are all on at the same time and really got, really took off at the same time. And that's what, what Relevance was. It was about talking about Korea, but really talking about Vietnam. It was talking about um, taking birth control on television through someone like Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, and it was also about talking about discrimination and bigotry, really taking the headlines of the time and turning them into plots and turning them into dramatic programming for hundreds of millions of people every week. You know, and if you talk about it on TV, it really makes people more likely to talk about it in their personal lives and in their friendships as well. And it kind of just moves the mm -hmm. whole conversation forward. Um, what was the moment when you were like a doctoral student where you're like, I'm going to write a dissertation and then a book about Norman Lear? Like what, <laughs> what was that decision process like? Well, looking back, um, I've thought about that a lot in the sense of what topics would be maybe safer to do and what topics would be perhaps more risky or difficult to pull off. Um, so I would say... I was influenced, I was fortunate enough to take um, some classes with Professor Lofton and sh her Oprah book was coming out at the time. So I was kind of shaped to 
think in terms of figures or to think in terms of figures who are both in and out of religious spaces, secular spaces, however we render them. Um, and so I was kind of opened up in that sense to be able to do that. But most specifically, it was really finding out that something like People for the American Way, which is non, which is Norman Lear's nonprofit, which we can talk a little about if you'd like, uh, forms in the early 80s, when I found out that that really came about because Lear had something against the televangelists of the late 70s, Falwell, Robertson, Robeson, Reagan, obviously not a televangelist, but when I, made, when I found that out and I found out the connection between the generation of that nonprofit and its interfaith composition and its support by people like Martin Marty and people like Donald and Peggy Shriver of Union Theological Seminary, you know, I began to see Norman Lear as being the focal point of a larger network of religious and political or religious and progressive liberals who are trying to find themselves almost amidst this moment of Thatcher across the pond, of Reagan, of things overturning, of, of, of really discombobulation on a mass kind of scale. Uh, so I, think, I don't think I really thought about it strategically, to be completely honest, in the sense of academia and how it operates. That was really never, um, never in my thought. I don't know if I would have done things differently in light of the fact that a lot of the public work I'm doing is an attempt to perhaps find work that is both academic and not at the same time. So that's also just an act of kind of just survival and acting mm -hmm. on one's passion in some sense. Uh, so I don't know if I were to think about that a little bit more, but it was really just that connection and knowing that I could, I could make that work uh, and I could use Lear as a kind of microcosm of something much bigger that I wanted to talk about. So, so far, so good. Well, it's really interesting, too, because like if you just think about the moment of discovering, wow, the most popular television producer of an entire decade has something against Jerry Falwell. What's up with yeah. that? You know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> such a compelling question. Why? Tell me more. Um, okay, so yeah. your new book, when is it coming out again? November 12th. Okay, great. Columbia University Press, correct? Yes. Excellent. Okay, so the book is called Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. So I am fortunate to have been able to read a few advanced chapters of the book, so thank you for that. So I'm curious you. if you can tell me a little bit about what the terms in your title, Rise and Fall, mean to you. Rise and Fall certainly came after. Um, I finished a lot of the edits, a lot of the sort of peer review, a lot of the back and forth. Um, it took me a little while, I think, to kind of see the change over time that, 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 that I was after. It was certainly in discussion uh, with the press as well as finding, trying to find a good, a good title. Um, I certainly wanted to focus on something like the religious left or spiritual left or something um, that people like you know, Lee Schmidt and others have sort of investigated. I knew it was going to be something like that, but as far as the rise and fall... I think that ends up better encapsulating or capturing what I'm after in the sense that I don't know how well we really understand how we go from someone like Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, you know, being these big figures in the 60s. And then all of a sudden, by the late to mid 70s, we get people like Falwell and Robertson. Falwell gives this famous speech in the 60s saying the gospel has nothing to do with anything social, yet less than a decade later, he's the CEO of the moral majority. How did that, how did that happen? Um, I still think that we're sort of struggling with that, or we're still trying to figure that out in some capacity. Uh, and so for me, if we're talking about things historically, this book isn't necessarily purely historical. It's a little bit more about a cross-section within a given time. There's certainly change over time, say the early 70s to the early 80s. That's kind of where we go from Norman Lear's religious liberal to Lear, founder of People Free the American Way. Uh, so there certainly is change over time, but I'm also interested in taking sort of cross-sections out of, of moments. Um, so I think we get this wonderful rise of relevance and the movement coming out of the 60s. And people, you know, what happened to the spirit? You know, did Kent State really destroy it. There's this great documentary that I watched that, you know, the day the 60s died is with Kent State. You know, what what happened to that? Where did it go? You know, people have argued, you know, answered that differently. Uh, did things become more radicalized? Did it become more capitalized, consumerized? Um, I just wrote a encyclopedia entry for the Oxford Encyclopedia um, online for history on the 1970s. 
You know, they're usually known as the me decade, people turning in and dropping out, pet rocks and chia pets and all these sorts of things. Um, so what really happened there and why why do we get this kind of falling away in the sense that, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, for the book, it is rise and fall, but I think if you're conservative in this period, it's not a fall at all. If anything, it's an ascent. If anything, it's a moment of mobilization and organization over against a movement that's maybe petering out. And how does that happen? And why do those who, say, bring in marketers and advertisers to remake the Republican Party, something I'm thinking about for a second project coming down the road, why do they come in and basically remake religion in public along conservative lines. Uh, we get Roe v. Wade. Obviously, there are arguments about what takes place with the mobilization of this conservatism or that conservatism. Um, I think in some ways what I'm trying to get at rise and fall, what happened to that moment? What happened to that energy? And I use Lear to kind of get at the strengths of that and also kind of the shortcomings of that and the falling away of that. And Daniel Bell, sociologist, talks about a transition from class to culture. Uh, if you want to be more controversial, you say class to identity, if you'd like, and all the arguments and debates about identity. But for him, you kind of lose that class emphasis, that class emphasis of maybe talking to someone like Archie Bunker, maybe asking him what his concerns are, or wondering why his paycheck is shrinking every week and every month and why he's having difficulty finding work. And losing the ability to talk to that person, you'd rather make that person the butt of a joke on something like All in the Family instead of actually entertaining that person. And I realize that saying those things today is somewhat sort of challenging in the sense of the times that we live in. But I think that fall, part of the reason that fall is you begin to lose touch with a wide range of individuals in this country. Uh, and so that's some of the stuff I want to explore later. But that's what I mean by the rise in the fall is that what, what, what happened to that? And then more importantly, perhaps, what, what, what can we learn from that moving forward? Are we okay with simply winning, quote-unquote, culture wars and losing elections? I don't necessarily know. I think people are rethinking that seriously right now. Hmm. Okay, so this, there is a lot of stuff about winning and losing in this context, like whose ideas win, whose ideas mm -hmm. lose. What, mm -hmm. Do certain ideas win culturally but lose mm -hmm. electorally? That's mm -hmm. such a fascinating question. And then you write in the 1970s that the religious left's rise seemed destined to succeed. But then you say that the religious left stopped taking the religious rights arguments seriously, labeling them as extremists. Do you think that mm -hmm. if they had kept the door more open that there might have been less division in society and then those the liberal ideas would have won anyway and then there would be more victory as far as like electorally? That's hard to say. I mean, I love the focus on ideas. Um, so I think for this next project I'm thinking about certainly maybe coming out of the Cold War and certainly the importance of ideas if you're teaching in sort of a general survey sense. We talk about obviously Cold War is a war of ideas, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you read these sort of conservative strategists who are coming in, they see it as basically warfare. I mean, it's not warfare, but for many of them, it is warfare. And that's a very different understanding of politics than those who are trying to broaden the circle or speak a prophetic message to the public square as its defenders and its maintainers. Um, so to me, it is a lot about winning and losing. And that's why I talked a little bit about messaging and marketing, because to me, I know it's maybe oversimplified, but in a lot of ways, we can understand the ascent of someone like Reagan, arguably as the product of a really well-run marketing and sort of advertising campaign. Um, I've written a little bit about that on behalf of, um, let's see, I can't remember where, but um, I looked a little bit at how Gerald Kushner kind of organized the campaign and how he used things like uh, Facebook Live and Google Maps and all these things to really focus in on the places so that we could get a quote-unquote return on investment. So it's not so much, you know, we want to bring people in. It's more what can we do to get the most on the, our return? And that's been a certain, I think, entrepreneurial way of thinking for conservative Protestants ever since, say, Scopes in some ways. You know, because the story of Lear is that Lear had the FCC behind him. Lear had the power of the state, of the federal government, which had created these rules to keep people like the Father Coughlins or Coughlins of the world off the radio in the 20s and 30s. Um, so there's a lot... There's a lot at play here. And as far as the winning and the losing and of, of ideas, I, it's hard for me or it's difficult for me to, to sort of admit, but a lot of it has to do with just messaging about who best spoke to the American people. And I think as conservatism was getting off the ground, I think those on the left weren't really sure what to do in the 70s. And I think once Reagan was elected, there was a sort of collective washing of hands. You know, how on earth could have this happened? How did you let this happen? Um, 
especially in light of this New York Times article that came out a little while ago, maybe a year or two ago, that it's an amazing title. It says something like religious liberals have sat out of politics for the last 40 years, but now they want back in the game. It's an amazing narrative because it so much mirrors the narrative of Pentecostals and fundamentalists basically going underground for half a century. Well, now we can kind of look at religious liberals as also sort of participating in their own exodus from the public square. But what's more com complex is that those liberals are the very ones invested in the idea of something like the public square over and against the ideas of privatization, of corporatization of the right. Um, so to me, that's why this is so fascinating, just because it has much less to do with sort of reaching as many people as possible. But what your very conception of politics is, is it this kind of expansive thing or is it really about, no, this is might not be guns and bullets and stuff, but this is warfare. Mm. Uh, this is it's a war of ideas, like you're saying. And whoever wins is going to arguably shape the public script of what we define religion as. So you've name-dropped a lot of uh, organizations and people. Um, you mentioned Reagan a minute ago, the Moral Majority, the Christian Nation, and also Lear. So I want to bring all those figures mm -hmm. back together because in the very beginning of the book, you start the book by quoting from a 1984 letter from Norman Lear to then-President Ronald Reagan, in which he writes about how deeply troubled he is by Reagan's endorsement of the surging mm -hmm. religious right movement. So... I'm curious how significant Lear was in critiquing movements like Christian Nation, the Moral Majority, and television evangelists. Like, was he prominently mm -hmm. public at this time? Like, was this mm -hmm. something that people in the country were talking about? How is Lear situated in the moment? Yeah, so this is where history is helpful in the sense that early 70s, there's not a lot of him saying anything about any of those folks. Um, obviously, just historically, we know that most of that doesn't take off till the mid to late 70s anyway. But the moment or the sort of through line is that Lear is, he's of a certain age that he remembers things like McCarthy. He remembers things like blacklists. He remembers what that did to Hollywood. He remembers what it was like growing up near Yale and having to hear things about quotas relative to Jewish students, having grown up listening to an anti-Semite like Coughlin, like Coughlin, um, very much has this idea of Jewishness or Judaism, just to sort of speak a little bit about that, as something that ha has to do with sort of ostracized, being ostracized, discriminated against, something like that. So that's why People for the American Way is very much a First Amendment nonprofit. Lear is very much in defense of freedom, religious freedom, um, artistic freedom. Um, so that's the bedrock kind of that a lot of this is grounded upon. Um, it's very civically oriented. It's a very civil religious kind of understanding of things. He tells a story about how either a grandfather or uncle used to write letters to the president every week or when something was he didn't like something dear mr president <laughs> uh you know here you go so it was very like civically oriented kind of understanding of things okay. um so yeah so his so that that's the kind of the bedrock and then these individuals the, the folks that you were mentioning kind of challenge or compromise those very freedoms that he has paid so dearly to protect and invest in and then he sort of that takes off a little bit as we get into the 70s, but that's kind of the bedrock. And once we get deeper into the decade, then we begin to kind of hear about him being more critical. He sues the networks uh, for something called the Family Viewing Hour, which is an attempt to kind of curtail what content was okay to show or not show at a, at a certain time. Uh, he thought that was censorship. So he has a very strong kind of First Amendment streak that then gets targeted or directed at people like a Falwell or Robertson, there's a moment where he's hearing one of those individuals pray for the removal of a Supreme Court justice, mm. and there's very much this transformation of, wow, this cannot be happening, um, I have to do something about it, and he was going to make a movie at first um, with the help of people like Robin Williams and Richard Pryor, uh, but decided to go in a different direction. So I make the argument that Lear helped bring a lot of liberal religious people together in the sense that he was almost a leader in a sense of calling these sorts of individuals out in public. You can look at something like all in the families kind of being civically oriented in the sense that we put a bigot in front of people because we don't agree with the bigot. It's because we're trying to learn something from the bigot. So there's something didactic about it. So that's a broader kind of bedrock. And then once the evangelists come about, Lear becomes very specific in particular about religion and freedom of religion. And then that sort of reminds him uh, about also listening to Coughlin and his own sort of existence as a Jewish individual 
in Hollywood. He's very aware of how that looks to everyone. He's talked about that in public. Um, so to me, he's someone who's giving a little bit of a banner, holding a banner in a lot of ways and serving as an example or exemplar of how to sort of critique or attack these sort of threats to democracy in his mind. Okay, so I want to come back to um, Charles Coughlin in just a second. But first, um, what are Lear's personal religious beliefs insofar mm -hmm. as he was willing to divulge them? So he was first, certainly, um, he certainly had a, ba um, a bar mitzvah. Um, I can't remember where, somewhere in New York, I think. But he grew up more or less in... Uh, Connecticut, very sparse of Connecticut, and mostly in New Haven. Certainly exposed to ex an extended Jewish family, uh, no question about that. Uncles, aunts, um, every a lot of things in Yiddish. Um, so very much sort of steeped in that kind of upbringing. Um, but then at the same time, I guess not unlike my own kind of family or my own sort of dad in some ways, um, not sort of emphasize per se, or you ask him, you know, how does this, what does this do for you? Or, or how do you understand being Jewish or Judaism? Um, it's not something that is necessarily um, emphasized or front and center. I think it's something that uh, comes up in certain particular moments, say when Lear is reminded of the fact that he had to listen to something growing up, or he sees a moment of exclusion, a moment of, or an instance of, say, the infringement of what textbooks can be used in the classroom, um, so to him, a lot of it still comes back to that kind of defensive sort of First Amendment freedoms, but then at the same time coming from um, certainly a Jewish place, but then also I would say a spiritual or religious place as well. Um, I don't think he would refer to himself as a religious person. Uh, he certainly has talked about mystical experiences and spiritual experiences, so that's why I, I used a lot of the writings on sort of the history of American spirituality he uh, purchased the estate of Robert Frost um, some years ago, and since the early 1980s, he's organized a pilgrimage every year during um, President's Day, I think, or some some holiday during the during the year where you where he invited people like um, the sort of intelligentsia at the time, the Mar Martys, the Maya Angelus. And these people would come together and really pontificate and think about what does worship mean, what does what does religion mean. Um, he's a big admirer of the Emersons and the Whitmans and the Thoreaus. Uh, so there's a lot of what sort of David Hollinger talks about is having a foot in one tradition and then the other foot is being able to explore other traditions as well, sort of a sampling, a bit of a cosmopolitan, you know, sensibility um, that I think he would be, he would admit is somewhat maybe spiritual, somewhat Jewish, but necessarily not s exclusively one or the other and not mutually exclusive either, if that makes any sense. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so, and he grows up in this Jewish family in this time period where Father Charles Coughlin is, like, on the radio and everywhere, correct? Yeah. Okay, so what was Coughlin saying that was memorable to Lear as Lear reaches adulthood and moves into a position of power in society? Yeah, so he grows up. Uh, listening to his crystal radio. And so he used to sit next to his dad uh, in his chair, in his dad's chair, which is the very same chair that you see really in All in the Family. Um, the show is very autobiographical. Uh, Lear put a lot of himself into that. And so he has these wonderful memories of listening sort of to boxing matches with, 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 with his dad, but then also um, to listening to fireside chats and listening to FDR and hearing things about the New Deal. Um, and at the same time, Lear is also hearing the words of um, Coughlin as well. And to him, it's forming him in the sense of, it was the first time that he heard himself sort of as an outsider. Or it was a moment when he sort of conceived himself as, oh, okay, I guess I'm not necessarily literally part of what this person is talking about, or I feel removed in some capacity. Uh, and then I think he was reminded of that, or that was emphasized even more, um, and I think he maybe talks about this in his autobiography, having to live in and around a school that's having something to do with, uh, with uh, quotas uh, and with those quotas being directed to Jewish um, individuals in particular. Um, and I think he ends up writing or, or winning, actually, an essay contest in which he's writing about, I think, the First Amendment or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, something like that. And he ends up winning the contest and he gets to go to Emerson, I think, um, college. He ends up getting to go to college. Uh, which doesn't last very long because then he has to go to World mm -hmm. War II. But, but um, he he ends up winning this and and writing. And I think that moment, which also gave birth to someone like um, 
someone who Adorno studies, uh, Martin Luther Thomas. Uh, so you have a number of sort of preachers at this time, uh, not unlike the late 70s, kind of, who are at times referred to as being anti-Semitic, as being against uh, Jewish individuals and Jewish life just in general. Um, in the mid-70s, there's a famous quote from a, the Southern Baptist Convention president at the time, God does not hear the prayer of a Jew. Um, so I think there's a lot of resonance that takes place uh, between the times of the 20s and 30s and the times of the 70s and 80s that Lear is able to literally experience because his life, you know, trans or sort of covers that whole swath of, of time. Um, so I think it certainly um, shaped his thinking about himself in a way that he maybe would have uh, preferred not to learn about per se as far as being um, perpetually perhaps on the outside and, and um but then I think it also undergirded what he ended up doing in the 70s and being so virulent and so such a defender of these sort of First Amendment rights as, he's, as, he, as he understood them. So Lear is experiencing these things growing up. He's having these experiences. He's doing these mystical experiences. He's reading across religious lines. And yeah. he founds his nonprofit, his First Amendment nonprofit, People for the American Way. So it seems like to me he values a civil religious vision surrounded around religious pluralism as a foundation mm -hmm. for like a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if um, what what his like philosophy is for how he how he views um, what the United States should be as a place for people of all religions. Like, what is his major goal? Yeah, I think so. As he, that's a yeah, that's a really good question. I think it. You see it a little bit in the shows. Um, I think he's trying to shape a particular consciousness, or at least um, introduce ideas into the world that he doesn't see there otherwise. Um, and that's why he was such a fascinating figure, in the sense that I could really talk about a similar set of sort of contributions that he makes through different places, through his television programming, um, through his nonprofit work, through his sort of suing of the federal government. Um, so it was just a really nice way of illustrating what he's after, which as you say, is a pluralistic vision for sure. It's a religious pluralism, a political pluralism, a civil religious pluralism, civil religious vision. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of that uh, can be leveraged. Um, I know someone like David Chittister has talked about civil religion as an articulation of power or a certain assemblage or organizing of, of governance. Um, that might be a little grandiose, but I think it's helpful uh, in the sense that Lear saw someone like Falwell or Robertson because, or as an outsider or someone who was an extremist or someone who could upset or overturn the apple cart, as it were, because he didn't necessarily play by the rules. Uh, for someone like Lear, there are rules, and I would argue to abstract it out that liberal democracy has certain rules. Uh, the Winifred Su Sullivans of the world, people who study liberal democracy, there are certain rules that come along with existing uh, as a quote-unquote person of faith or religious person. Tisa Wenger writes, what is religion? What's not religion? Uh, so for Lear, the shortcomings, he could have this wonderful, beautiful vision, uh, but what I sort of talk about the fall is that conservative individuals really aren't part of that vision. And if people, or if those look back at Robert Bell's original um, article from the late 60s, he actually uses, and I never realized this, the John Birch Society as a pole against which to define civil religion. I don't know if civil religion's really been contextualized in that way, but I would argue that because he creates this binary for reasons that are understandable, obviously, but as far as the theoretical and conceptual kind of validity of all of it, you look back at the article and he's using Birchers and I think he also says national nationalist movements or something like that mm. as a foil against which to create this thing called civil religion, which is then enshrined in the in various legislation decisions and very in various documents. So that's certainly his goal and his vision is to kind of as this one sociologist says, to protect the liberal deep story, to protect the public square, to protect public goods. Because at the time, those public goods are being dismantled, uh, more and more sort of conservative arguments and neoliberal arguments are sort of dismantling public, 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 and we're still trying to figure that out in many, in many ways. But that's kind of the shortcoming, I, I argue, is that in these civil religious articulations and pluralistic articulations, you don't really have a room or a voice for someone like 
maybe an Archie Bunker or something like a Falwell. Um, not to obviously condone or anything, but there's this great anecdote where Falwell um, acknowledges that Lear creates people for the American way, but instead Falwell calls it people for Norman Lear's way. So I think there's some truth to that. Mm. And that's part of the dimensions of the fall that I get into. On whose behalf are we constructing this pluralistic society? And how is it going to operate? And so that's why the last chapter of the book, Lear puts on this variety show that's almost like civil religion. It's almost like a play. It's almost like a variety show, like a civil religion variety show or something like that with with the different values that we're meant to uphold you know, non-discriminatory, interreligious, you know, these sorts of things. So it was wonderfully aspirational and and beautiful in its composition and its intent. Uh, there's just unfortunately a bit, of, um, a bit of a weakness in that entire apparatus that I try and give voice to. What's really interesting is that Lear puts a character like Archie Bunker on television explicitly to put those ideas out there because he sees those ideas as uh, not being um, supposed to survive into the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he also, you also have this quote on page four of your book where when talking about people for the American way, you write that they monitor potentially abrasive language in the public square while facilitating civil deliberation on behalf of the nation's religious minorities. And mm-hmm. then you just talked about how Falwell almost feels like left out. Mm-hmm. Does So does, does that complicate the situation here? It does, yeah. And that's my very, very point in the sense that I don't certainly want to be seen as coming to the defense of anything or trying to speak to those who can defend themselves or anything like that. Um, but I think part of part of the study or part of what I'm trying to point out is just how the system itself is kind of bent against or designed against conservative actors, um, arguably going back to something like the 20s and 30s with Coughlin, obviously for the correct reasons. Uh, but in a lot of ways, you know, Peter Berger writes this article in the late 70s, early 80s, and he uses the phrase to describe televangelists, he uses the phrase Ayatollahs of the airwaves. So I think there's something to that. And scholar, um, one of a, a dear friend of mine, David Watt, has written just, just this beautiful book on anti-fundamentalist arguments. And Lear is very much a part of that tradition. And, very, and so is someone like Martin Marty uh, in the sense of Lear and others represent a particular place and voice it's not Mm. an abstracted in you know enlightenment place of nowhere it's a very embodied physical taste class-based position uh and that's kind of what i'm trying to draw out a little bit and you know like i said i'm not trying to you know arguments today about religious freedom and how and sort of conservative interests are being um, supported by these things i'm certainly i don't want to be read or, or seen to be speaking to any of that just because of the time that we sort of happen to live in. But at the same time, um, the system itself is kind of bent in certain directions. And Falwell wanted to actually be part of the I Love Liberty um, variety show. And he actually reached out to someone like Lear. Uh, But Lear, of course, said no. And he said, we didn't want any speeches or we didn't want any lectures. All the while, ABC is giving Lear millions of dollars to produce this variety show. So for a lot of journalists and you know academics, not so much, but conservative commentators, this was a conflict of interests. You know, this was an example of ABC kind of basically funding a nonprofit organization's um, extended commercial, basically mm. for itself. Um, and so I'm. That's a lot of what this is about: is pointing out those kind of dynamics and maybe seeing individuals who we're used to hearing about in different lights. Um, you know, someone like Falwell, perhaps, or just the relationship between the two men in the sense that they were reported on a lot together in the public eye. You could even say that Lear was maybe helped, his visibility in the late 70s was helped because he was tethered to Falwell, even though both of them played it down. Falwell did call Norman Lear the number one enemy of the family Mm -hmm. in America. So there's a lot to be said about that, about the imbrication about the inextricability of these two men and sort of what they're attempting to do at the time. Does Lear actually see what he's doing as religious in nature, or does he just view it as activism? Because the book is about the religious right, the religious left, culture wars. How does Lear see and view what he's doing? Is it religious or not? Um, I think it is, and then I I think it isn't. I think there's a tendency maybe on the proverbial, whatever we would call religious left or spiritual left, 
um, to certainly say that, yes, I come from a place of sort of social justice and the gospel applies to social conditions and we're going to make that possible and make that happen. So in some ways, he is by default a part of that kind of tradition in the sense that texts just don't speak to individual transformation. They can also speak to the world around us. Um, so in some sense, you could locate him in that larger, longer kind of tradition. You know, he basically took TV and tried to apply it or tried to take this larger vision and apply it to television. So it's very much kind of modernist application of method. You know, how are we going to use the tools around us to reach out to those um, to those around us? Now, I think it can also be, I mean, I think it, it would maybe depend on the on the issue or the particular cause. I think Lear, or if you were to ask him, I think he would say, he would say it's just part of his duty as an American. Um, certainly his sort of commitment to the First Amendment. I think it's, it's really blurry in the sense that, yes, it is activism, uh, but it's also kind of spiritual activism. It's religious activism, especially if it has to do with discrimination in any kind of sense, um, which I think is why perhaps there's still so much sort of misunderstanding about the relationship between religion and politics and the proper relationship. Uh, because Lear wrote, or People for the American Way wrote countless books on the proper ways of mixing religion and politics together. And so the, you know, the presumptuousness that comes with that, you know, it's sort of prescribed, it's a certain formula, how the two are supposed to go together. Um, but I think as far as, as we talk about what the religious left is or isn't, you know, I think there's something to be said about that. Are we clear about how to translate the prophetic into the pragmatic? Um, you know, the left tends to see itself as speaking from a, uh, from a prophetic place, certainly a place of relevance. Um, I just wonder, how that's worked, um, if it's been as clear as it could be, especially this sort of age that we live in, which seems to be continually defined by someone like Reagan. Um, so for me, I think it would, I think it would vary, and that might be part of the amorphousness that sort of comes with religious liberal activism, is that you don't necessarily, there's no real sort of definitive yes this or yes that. I think it's kind of sort of a blend of all of it. I want to sort of end today on a conversation about here and now 2019 mm -hmm. um you know we live in this uh you know the news every day is very strange it's often troubling um mm -hmm. but we have this sort of resurgence about discussion of the religious left as sort of coming back so you know we mm -hmm. might have like a rise and a fall and a rise again you never mm -hmm. know so we have news reports mm -hmm. of like migrant kids being held in cages or without access to toothbrushes or enough water we have travel bans that have been you know tied to religion rollback mm -hmm. of epa regulations while also religious groups have been fighting for um environmental concerns the list goes on mm -hmm. so we're on the cusp of another presidential election and i see coverage of the religious left more and more so like I see somebody like Reverend William Barber, mm -hmm. the, the vast coverage of the candidate Pete Buttigieg. Um, I've been following the journalism of Jack Jenkins and Kelsey Dallas a whole bunch lately. Mm -hmm. And so I see the religious left as being discussed in ways I haven't seen before in my lifetime um, of caring about this topic. Like, do you see it that way? Is this an exciting time to be writing and researching about this topic of the religious left? It is. I think it could be maybe it's the most important time, perhaps the most significant time um, to perhaps really figure out what it's about, what it is, what it's not. Um, yes. Um, so in some capacity, I think we have to be wary of and I think people have written about this, the idea of, you know, Democrats just have to talk about religion more, you know, or something like that. I think we have to be careful because I think since the 80s or since the late 70s, We've really played, we being those who are interested in, say, progressive activism or the potentials or the theoretical kind of capacities, I think for a good deal of time, a lot of that movement has played on terms not of its own definition. So I think in some capacity, if you just push for more religion, quote unquote, whatever that means, you're almost reproducing your own irrelevance. Um, I think you have to be very clear as to what you're trying to say and why you're trying to say it to the public. You know, we talked earlier about why we communicate with the public and different publics. I think there's some maybe a times assumption that we have an obligation, that we have a commitment, which we do, I think, in a lot of ways to educating, to spreading a broader word. Um, I just think we have to be careful. Um, I think we have to be clear as to um, what, our, what, what, what the message is uh, or what it would be and if, if, if it could be as clear as possible. I think it's a really, I think it's a really, really exciting time. 
Um, but I also think that there also is a moment of, okay, this is somewhat maybe happened before, you know, talked about the rise and the fall. If we're, you know, anyone that's is a Twin Peaks fan in here or over the airwaves here, it's sort of happening again in the sense that we have this relevance moment in the 60s. And now we have another moment, which is which was kind of largely inaugurated in some sense by the Times article that we talked a little bit about, which I didn't really, really realize was in the air at the time. Uh, and it just gave me so much to think about. So I think, yes. It's a really important time. I think it's a time to be very attentive and very reflective about the terms that we use, why we use those particular terms, whose interests are we actually representing. Um, so I've written a little bit about Mayor Pete. Um, I think the fact that um, someone like Jim Wallace is still kind of referred to or still kind of invited or still sought after is a little bit of maybe a little problematic i think in some capacity he's been saying similar things since at least the late 60s or early 70s um in fact i think progressive evangelicals were really the ones sort of trying to get the voice out in the early 70s the social declaration of evangelical concerns so nothing historically says that the right should have overtaken the public script as they did so I think we have to understand that process better. I think we have to think about more you know, messaging. I think we have to think about, uh, for those who are interested in sort of ap applying a lot of this to organizing, about um, you know, congregations and churches, those sorts of things, I think it's really a moment of reflection um, because I think this moment is certainly bringing a lot of this out in some capacity. I wonder if, you know, this moment, if it was, if things were a little bit different, less divided, if we've had such a discussion of something called the religious left. So it brings up wonderful questions about the relationship between what's going on around us and how people respond to those conditions. Um, but I think it's, it's very complex. Um, I think there's a little bit at times some nostalgia, you know, thinking that we can just resurrect what, what happened during the civil rights movement or just assume that, that those individuals on the right side of, of, of sort of justice and human history. And so there's no need to defend those sorts of things. I think in some ways, uh, like we talked a little about earlier, there's an opportunity to sharpen and hone arguments and how to speak to broader audiences uh, in this moment. If you're thinking along the lines of religious left or trying to articulate yourself in that capacity, I think it is really exciting. It's also very challenging and complex, but it could lead to any number of you know exciting developments and certainly will be along there for the ride. Well, if there's anybody out there listening from any presidential House of Representatives <laughs> or Congress campaigns, you should hire Dr. Benjamin Rolski as an advisor, potentially bring him on board so he can teach you all about this. Um, so, Dr. Rolski, um, where can people find you if they want to follow your work, get in touch or know more about what you are doing? Well, it's almost as if you read my mind, and I appreciate that, um, because um, in the lead-up to the presidential, the 2020 presidential election, uh, Rutgers University is putting together um, a panel of experts who journalists can refer to, newspaper people, magazines, anyone who have any, has any questions about uh, issues and topics of religion or culture or politics or the interstitial kind of relationship between all that stuff. And I just happen to be um, appointed to that panel. Yes. Um, so I, in fact, will be, if those who are interested, you know, reaching out, I will be handling kind of the religion stuff. I think there's a website that they will uh, put up in time. Uh, but, yeah, they're getting a little bit ahead of the game and they want to make people, I guess, like myself, um, available to journalists and those who may, might have questions about what's uh, forthcoming. Um, so I really appreciate your endorsement and the sort of beautiful segue and um, as far as the religious left, um, there should be an imminent frame uh, forum, which is uh, it's connected to the Social Science Research Council, imminent frame being a wonderful interdisciplinary space of, of analysis and conversation. Um, there should be a forum on the religious left coming out um, sometime soon that I'll be a part of. Um, and then I have something on um, Fox News. Someone wrote this really great book or this uh, colleague of mine, um, Reese Peck, wrote this great book called Fox News. Uh, branding conservatism is working class. Um, that piece will come out the, with the Los Angeles Review books at some point. Um, it's a really great book. I think it's a central reading for anyone trying to understand how conservatism functions as an idiom, as a language, as a discourse. Just a wonderful book. And um, yeah, other than that, I'm hoping for the hoping for good um, good things with the book in November. 
Uh, so be on the lookout for that. And, um, you know, thank you very much for your own time and your own work and your own efforts and putting this together. Um, you know, people in my field have been really looking closely at what you're doing and just know it's a, appreciated. I appreciate it. And a number of other people appreciate it as well. So I just want to thank you for that. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for those kind words. Hey, uh, really quick, can is the book available for pre-order? Can people find it and order it already or is that coming soon? Yes, the book is available. Actually, I should have said something like that. So I have a website, uh, just my name, benjirolski.com. It is available for pre-order. You can do it through Columbia. Uh, you can also do it through Amazon. I think even Barnes & Noble has it up now. I think there's a paper, there's a hardcover and a, a paperback version. Oh, great. I think, I think it's around $35, so it's not, it's not crazy. Um, so people can certainly go ahead and um, order to their heart's content. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you so much, sir. This has been a really great chat. I'm so glad to have had you on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really had a great time. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.